Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Will Summer, and welcome to The Daily Beast Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at The Daily Beast. My book on QAnon, Trust the Plan, The Rise of QAnon, and the Conspiracy that Unhinged America, will be available in February and is available for pre-order now. And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Welcome back to Fever Dreams. I'm newly minted author Will Summer, <laughs> and I'm joined by newly paperback minted author Kelly Weil. Kelly, how are you doing? I am great, Will. Huge day. Minor day for me. Huge day for you. Book is out. It's on the shelves. Hope everyone's reading it. How are you doing personally? Good. We're, we're rocking and rolling. Just getting out the word about Trust the Plan, my new book on QAnon. New York Times endorsed the big daddy himself, Dwight Garner, at the book section. Um, but we'll get into that <laughs> later on in today's podcast. The paperback of your book, Off the Edge, is out as well. Are you pumped? I'm pumped. I'm uh, I'm excited for people to get their hands on that nice flexible paperback cover. It's a, it's a game changer. Yeah. I love it. I love it. That's a that's a beach read for you folks. Okay, so, you know, we'll get more into trust the plan a little later on in today's podcast. But first of all, Kelly there was a big rally in D.C. I say big. Let, let's put quotation marks around that. I think definitely less than the gathering of the Juggalos a few years back. Um, it was, <laughs> but in actually the same location. It was the Rage Against the War Machine rally at the Lincoln Memorial. Kelly, what went on here? Yeah, so this is great. You know, you love to see people unite in uh, the spirit of love and peace and anti-war. And oh, 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 no, hang on. Isn't that Matt Heimbach, the founder of the neo-Nazi group Traditional Worker Party? Um, yeah, so listen, we had some really colorful characters converge in D.C. This is a nominally anti-war rally, but for some reason, pretty much all the speakers were pretty far right. It it was largely organized by the Libertarian Party. Uh, Speakers included Scott Ritter. He's a convicted sex criminal who uh, blames Ukraine for massacres of its own civilians by Russian troops. So a really interesting event. I'm not going to call it a huge event, about a thousand people or fewer. But it's sort of the latest effort of the right to inch in on this anti-war kind of lefty sentiment and say, hey, you know what? Maybe the people who are fueling the war machine are not, you know, Russia. It's Democrats. And I think that's some rhetoric we're going to see quite a lot more of in days to come. Yeah, it's interesting because there is this political tendency that we have seen grow up. And, and, you know, I'm sure people would date this back a while to like the Ron Paul movement or whatever. But this tendency of, of these like liberals who are very Russia friendly and who are generally for all intents and purposes of conservative and and maybe not russia friendly every time but like the the people i'm thinking of here are like you know on the more moderate aspect and i say moderate lightly i'm thinking of like dave rubin tim pool uh tulsi gabbard all the way to people like uh youtube uh celeb jimmy Dore, the the the, uh max blumenthal these people who have like I guess like an idiosyncratic politics, um, and this was really a a convergent space for them. And so, in that way, I thought it was it was useful. I mean, there's a guy named uh, I think Jackson Hinkle who is a, a Twitter personality who's a very weird guy. He's a big promoter of what he calls MAGA communism. I mean, this is I guess you could sum this up as people who lost the plot. 
you know, kind of people who are off doing their own thing. And, and it, but they all, they all decided to do one thing uh, over the weekend. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you bring up Jackson Hinkle because he has this idea of like mega communism. And a lot of the folks showing up here are right wing people who have this little veneer of leftism, right? So he's a mega guy, wants to try and reach out to, you know, some DSA rejects and say, we're going to be mega communists together. There's a big participation from the Libertarian Party, not just the Libertarian Party, but specifically the Mises Caucus of the Libertarian Party. This is a hard right faction that recently took over the party at large. They've removed clauses from the Libertarian Party platform that supported abortion and condemned bigotry. So yeah, we talked about these guys before. Since we talked about them, they tweeted like some anti-Semitic, quote, happy merchant memes uh, with Sam Bankman-Fried. The Libertarian Party really is in the hands of some absolute racist nuts right now. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned moderates, and we don't even need to talk about the moderates. We can talk about the people who are at this rally with the uh, Russian Z logo on their backpacks. So anti-war rally, mm, not so sure about that. Certainly uh, anti uh Ukrainians pushing back against war rally. But, um, you know, there, there were some other colorful characters. There was a Bitcoin, not bombs booth. There were some people with signs saying that the government controls the weather. Uh, so, you know, just a, a good melting pot of some of the greatest political luminaries. Yeah. You know, Kelly, you mentioned Scott Ritter. And Scott Ritter is a guy who has um, kind of been been sticking in my teeth a little bit lately. So now folks, maybe uh, elder millennials and above, may remember Scott Ritter from the lead up to the Iraq war because he was a UN weapons inspector who was very critical of the war. And while Scott was certainly on the right side of that war, he's definitely on the wrong side or has been in the past of laws against sexually soliciting minors. Because this is a guy who I believe has not just one sting, but two. He was busted in 2001 and 2009. Um, And these are these kind of like to catch a predator style, except my understanding is that done by actual police stings that that he landed at least one conviction for. He got back on my radar because he's really become this is a guy who's who's like very a cozy Russia guy. But he was also tight with Eliza Blue the anti-child sex trafficking advocate who we, we discussed previously. And so this is a guy who's really been back on the circuit despite sort of having this very blaring siren about his background. But you know what, Kelly? The, the beauty of kind of palling around with conspiracy theory-minded people, um, as Donald Trump himself learned, is that whenever you have a an unpleasant criminal conviction, you can say, man, you really believe that? That was the dang deep state. They wanted to discredit me. Yeah, man, the, the dang deep state uh, lured you onto those forums at least twice. I mean, wouldn't have been there otherwise, but I'm sure we're trying to uh, lure minors out of talking about uh, weapons of mass destruction, something like that. And somewhere in that chat, it just went sideways. Can I interest you in a discussion about yellow cake? <laughs> uh, <laughs> It's really something. I mean, and it is like you can also with a lot of these people, you can sort of see why this person has ended up. They, they have kind of like a giant problem that prevents them from becoming a more mainstream figure. You know, as you mentioned, uh, a lot of LaRouche people in the mix. I just want to say I want to say something about Lyndon LaRouche. You know, I know in the past I mentioned the possibility of a narrative podcast about Lyndon LaRouche and Fever Dreams audience was really excited about it. There's a lot of ground groundswell for it. But the thing I want to flag is these guys have really been out in the mix these days. They are really they're they're back. You know, Lyndon LaRouche died a couple years back, but the, the LaRouches are out there. And I really recommend people. A lot of them are posing as Trump supporters and they may very well be. But I'm seeing a lot of, I don't mean to protect the good name of the MAGA movement, but I'm seeing a lot on Reddit and stuff of people saying, look at these MAGA nuts. But but it's, it's always something like, build more nuclear power, abolish the British monarchy. And they're saying, these Trump supporters. And it's like, guys, those are LaRouche's. They're in disguise. The The thing is, the LaRouche people have gotten really into harassing New York Democrats. People may remember a few years ago, there was a video of them yelling at AOC. Now, George Santos has made a prominent alliance with LaRouche's because Richie Torres, member of Congress, was dunking on Santos. Then LaRouche's came out and yelled at him. And then Santos tweeted, well, I don't know. Like, looks like your constituents hate you. So I think LaRouche's are coming back. Oh, yeah. In a big way. One of the speakers at the event was uh, Diane Sari. Sarah, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name right. She ran for Congress. And one of her only qualifications is she knew the man himself. She was an OG LaRouche ally. So, I mean, some of them are disguising themselves as, you know, Democrats who are going to go and heckle AOC. Some of them are disguising themselves as MAGA fans. But some aren't disguising themselves at all. They are 
all in it. They are, you know, like you said, shouting about the monarchy and about, uh, you know, returning music tuning to an obscure scientific pitch, which is an actual uh, original LaRouche platform. And I wish I could say that it was all that quirky and harmless, but they're they're pretty hardcore conspiratorial. And there always ends up being some anti-Semitism, some bigotry in the mix. And uh, yeah, they're out there. They're balling out. Okay. All right. I I think balling out is great. Speaking of balling out, there are questions about financial impropriety at Project Veritas. Will, you have been following this for ages. What is going on with James O'Keefe? While people were enjoying President's Day, my day was rocked by a huge development at Project Veritas. The prankster prince himself, James O'Keefe, is in big trouble. And in fact, Project Veritas is now O'Keefe-less. So here's what happened. So last week, we talked about chaos at Project Veritas, employees complaining about outright cruel behavior what they, that they alleged at the hands of O'Keefe. Now, of course, this is the right-wing undercover camera group that has been very successful at disrupting liberal groups. And of course, James O'Keefe is the ringmaster of, of this circus. They're facing an FBI investigation over the theft of Ashley Biden's diary. There's a lawsuit about the party-hardy alleged atmosphere there where some guy overdosed and you know a party-goer pooped on the floor. <laughs> I, I, I keep forgetting that detail, but but it should stick with me more that James O'Keefe was pulling up porn at work. I mean, he's denied all wrongdoing here, but it really came to a head last week. And the Project Veritas board sidelined him. And the thing to underline here is the Project Veritas is a nonprofit. Okay, so let's skip to, uh, you know, additionally, James O'Keefe allegedly stole a sandwich from a pregnant woman. You know, we got to get that one in there. So on Monday... It broke that James O'Keefe had sort of resigned under pressure from Project Veritas. And as I was working on this story, I discover that James O'Keefe had recorded a video. And this is very interesting. So Project Veritas was closed on Monday. However, James O'Keefe went to the office, seemingly with some of his compatriots, and recorded a 45-minute video. And I have to say... Kelly, you and I in this beat, we encounter a lot of crazy videos. But I think this one, have you had a chance to see this? I have. This video, I'm going to say, is a bait and switch because he is standing in there. He's got his uh, he's got his prepared remarks. He's standing in front of a desk. It's not entirely clear he's allowed to be in the building at that time. It is. Yes. Well, because the lights are down low, too. It sort of feels like like there's a security guard like doing the rounds. They're like, Keep, uh, turn off the lights, turn off the lights. There is something very furtive about this, but uh, he doesn't feel too rushed because he goes, this is going to take about 15 minutes and yes. then it goes on for 45 goddamn minutes it's something that's fun to like you know buffer through to flip through because you'll land on some insane non sequitur like him crying about strawberry ice cream oh my god yeah th- there is a point he was like i was living with my dad and the fbi came in the door but my dad said and you know Matt, you know we're just gonna put a little audio from it in here both my parents are as genuine and down to earth as a son could ever have it's true you never really know someone until you go through hell with them You see, back in the carriage house, 13 years ago, the feds would come to my home to make sure that I was inside my house, administering random drug tests and rifling through my expenses to make sure I wasn't lying about the strawberry ice cream I bought at 7-Eleven. I didn't have any money, but they went through my debit card statements and tried to get me to sign things to prove I wasn't lying. There were federal agents showing up at my parents' house. There were no donors. There were no supporters. And I was not trending on Twitter. My father went through this hell with me and stood up to those bullies on the front lawn and told them to stop harassing our family. But my dad said, get out of here. And, you know, he's crying. And Yeah, it's a really a strange kind of a, a blockbuster in the um, in the canon of right wing meltdown videos, because he's trying to, you know, portray himself as an embattled journalist on his way out. He says things about journalists, you know, where uh, we're looking to the stories that the powerful people don't want us to look into. But it doesn't really look like he's uh, looking outward so much as he is casting the blame within his own organization. He is a. Uh, claiming that the board pulled one over on him, the board of Project Veritas, that he tried uh, casting out some bad apples in the organization and that the board retaliated, that they pushed him out. And so this is a, it's really an airing of grievances. And I think, Will, you did some really good reporting on the internal factions of Project Veritas that 
might be at play here. Just to highlight about this video, so this is 45 minutes long. I would say the last 10 minutes, I mean, he's pretty actively crying. He is sweating. I mean, he look, I'm a sweaty guy myself, so I don't mean to cast aspersions on on, on people of sweat. But like this guy <laughs> is, I mean, it, it, you know, I, I was kind of, I was like, well, maybe the lights are hot. I mean, this guy is it's sweating. And this is like Marco Rubio levels of, of guzzling water. Someone, somewhat curiously, there's a guy in about a tenth of the frame who is, whose face is blurred. And it's like, can we just get that guy out of the frame? Now, I suspect that is R.C. Maxwell, a James O'Keefe loyalist, who goes by the name Black Hannity. So it's a make of that what you will. So yeah, so he, he, you know, he's like, I'm going to pack up my stuff in my Subaru and, and all this. But the key thing is he, here is that he says he's going to launch a new Project Veritas. Uh, my wife recommended the name Very Veritas. Uh, so, so maybe if he wants to work with that, I think a, a small royalty payment would be accepted. So here's the deal. From the Project Veritas board's point of view. Now, this has occasioned a lot of backlash on the right. We got this last week, too, where they say, you know, people like Kimberly Guilfoyle and Lara Logan and all these people and Don Jr. are saying, you can't get rid of James O'Keefe. And I think the Project Veritas board probably agrees with that, that this organization is going to be basically dead in the water. But like I said, this is a nonprofit and there are rules about how the money is spent. So, you know, we talked before about they spent at least $20,000 illicitly uh, helping James O'Keefe with a production of the musical Oklahoma, in which he played Curly. There are a lot of other concerns about his expenses. So the board, I would say, is, so the board is is one of the leaders on it is this guy named Matt Tierman, who is a longtime O'Keefe loyalist, uh, Steve Bannon crony, Bolsonaro super fan. I tried to interview him for a story about Bolsonaro, and he decided to tape me. I felt like it really wasn't going anywhere, so I didn't run a story. And then he released the audio, and it was like, ah, look at this dummy. So let's just say cut from the same cloth. So he seems to have played a key role in sidelining O'Keefe. But people are saying, well, this is because O'Keefe did a video against Pfizer. But Kelly, I mean, I guess my take is I kind of think the board had to do something here and I because it sort of seems like they were looking at this and they were like holy moly we are about to be legally liable for this guy's spending if we don't step in that's absolutely my take on it too and it seems to be the take of the Washington Post which is out this morning a Tuesday reporting that the board was acutely afraid of what was going to happen if they got audited by the IRS the post's internal memos the board saying there is no project veritas without the IRS by which they mean that Project Veritas is a nonprofit. It is fueled by, you know, huge conservative donations, but those are tax deductible, right? So if Project Veritas were to lose its nonprofit status, ooh, they're in some hot water. And it seems like the board actually had real reason to think that James O'Keefe was putting that in jeopardy. As soon as James O'Keefe put this video out, you know, it's 45-minute whinge fest, the board uploaded its own response statement, really itemizing some of its issues that they had with him. They said he spent uh, $14,000 on a charter flight to meet someone to fix his boat under the guise of meeting with a donor. They said $60,000 in losses by putting together dance events, such as the Project Veritas Experience, which is something I am uh, not cursed to actually know what that is. Oh my God, wait, can I tell you? Okay. So so the Project Veritas <laughs> Experience is, and I, I think if folks want to learn more, I think Rolling Stone had an article about this. It is a, a sort of dance review with James O'Keefe. I mean, this is the thing where he dances around to the, the song. He took the Prince song Controversy and made it oligarchy. And so he wears a bulletproof vest that says press on it. And he has like backup dancers. And this is, I, I, I think there's other, he probably gives a speech, but you know, you pay probably a hundred bucks. I think he did one in Las Vegas and one somewhere else. So, I mean, my brain is so wrecked by this. I saw this, you know, a year ago and I thought, huh, I guess that's what nonprofits do these days. <laughs> but apparently not. <laughs> I like that they specify $60,000 in losses. Like, you know, it, it, it wasn't like a fundraising thing. It wasn't like a, an important lesson was learned. No, it was a pretty clear cut loss. Nobody uh, gained anything by watching him dance around in his bulletproof vest. He spent $14,000, not just fixing his boat, but on a flight to get someone to fix his boat. And it seems like there were levels of subterfuge there because he passed it off as a donor meeting. It was, in fact, something else. The examples here of the use of money, they say he spent a lot of money on DJ equipment. Now, I guess my question is, was this DJ equipment for an event or was this like James O'Keefe is, is work, 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 work. There's a lot of unanswered questions, I think. So in his video, he claims Project Veritas is investigating him for using roughly $13,000 on what, according to the minutes, is described as a wedding venue. His argument is, yes, this is a wedding venue, but it was for the Project Veritas Christmas party. Now, look, 
we work in media. We haven't been to the most lavish Christmas parties. $13,000 for a nonprofit seems mighty steep to me. Nevertheless, he said, you know, I, I've never been married. Now, and then he gestures at this woman. He's like, now I got married to you in Oklahoma. So even in this <laughs> stuff, he's referencing other <laughs> illicit expenditures in his defense. <laughs> I love it because he seems like, you know, just how Donald Trump really, I think, in his heart of hearts wants to be a poster. He wants to be a media commentator. He wants to, you know, rag on the Vanity Fair after party not being hot anymore. James O'Keefe wants to be a theater guy. He wants to be doing Oklahoma and he wants to be able to make his employees do his uh, little song and dance numbers. And I think this is what these expenditures are starting to hint at is that maybe Project Veritas wasn't really a, a sting operation at all, but was in back to front for a, you know, a mid-tier theater operation. And honestly, that is what a lot of O'Keefe supporters would like it to be. And so this is what is so odd is people seem to be ignoring the fact that a nonprofit, even in our nightmarish post-Citizens United rules, look, James, you can do the the stings, man. You can do the fundraising and the parties. The issue is the musicals and the boat repair. And so, but the the reaction I'm seeing is like, I, you know, there's some guy on who's like a, a business hustle bro who seems to have some amount of money on Twitter. And he was saying, you know, I have demanded that Project Veritas return my money. And there's all these other angry donors who are saying essentially, no, Project Veritas is meant to exist as James O'Keefe's piggy bank. But there is no nonprofit law that supports that. And the board is... I, I think, you know, we've discussed this, but this has to have reached a point because I think the board was happy to allow a lot of this. I mean, the, the Project Veritas experience stuff, that was a while ago. So this has been cooking for a while. And it seems like they just said, James, please, like, no, you can't buy, you can't buy turntables or something like that. And then he said, well, screw you, I'm out of here. So this chaos is unfolding and now he's going to start a rival group. Now here, I, I want to lay out something that I think might happen. I think... Let's say, you know, it, our placeholder term, very Veritas. I think very Veritas may end up stinging Project Veritas and vice versa. So I think this might end up being kind of a circular firing squad situation uh, that, look, from our perspective, could only only get better. <laughs> okay, Kelly, we as a nation, according to Marjorie Taylor Greene, are headed towards a national divorce. Catch me up. Right. So uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is out with a revolutionary concept. Why don't we just eliminate all our disagreements by dividing the U.S. into the very uh, neat uh, distinctions of red states and blue states? This, of course, being Marjorie Taylor Greene, who uh, is a Republican in a state with two Democratic senators. But nevertheless, uh, this weekend, Marjorie Taylor Greene tweets, we need a national divorce. We need to separate by red states and blue states and shrink the federal government. Everyone I talk to says this, from the sick and disgusting woke culture issue shoved down our throats from Democrats, traitorous America last parties, we are done. Now, listen, this is a call for secession from someone from Georgia. Uh, we've seen how this plays out <laughs> before. It doesn't actually turn out well, but this is uh, not necessarily a brand new concept on the right, this idea of national divorce. Marjorie Taylor Greene actually called for it uh, during a Timcast appearance this summer. She says that we need to break up the U.S. to, quote, avoid civil war. And this idea also has a, uh, a strong fan base in some folks that we previously mentioned this uh, episode, the Mises Caucus of the Libertarian Party. This idea of national divorce argues that uh, we should break up the states, you know, stop having a big, wasteful federal government and just have a collection of states where, you know, you live in a clean blue state or a red state and there's no internal dissent within there. Obviously, this is like seditionist and it's never going to happen. But it's really interesting for me to see this idea move from the absolute fringes, the weirdest people in the Libertarian Party to a sitting U.S. representative who's arguing for this on Twitter. What do you think the impulse is is on the right? Because, I mean, it's not just Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, it, I feel like I see a decent number of conservative commentators talk about it. I mean, Kurt Schlichter is a guy at Town Hall and a, a man about Twitter. He wrote a series of sort of fascinating thrillers about the idea of a national divorce. I mean, what is it do you think that is about this moment or the past 10 years or so? Like, w what is the impulse here? So, okay, and Kurt's mind, the impulse is just having a dystopian novel where he can make a, a liberal state accidentally have the uh, name that is an acronym for piss, I think, was the entire <laughs> joke in, in that novel. So, listen, I think they are very into the idea, frankly, of, of just shooting people. They love the idea of having clean 
lines between their little red nation and the uh, evil blue ocean around them. They love the idea of civil war, and I think it's pretty alluring, the idea that they will uh, no longer have to cooperate with Democrats in Congress. They won't have to obey a Democratic president, but they will, in fact, have their own little red fiefdoms. With the Libertarian Party in particular, uh, especially the Mises Caucus, which is kind of driving the show right now, they're very into the idea of dissolving the U.S. They do not want a U.S. to exist. They want it to have, you know, something bordering on anarcho-capitalism. And so does Marjorie Taylor Greene actually agree with this? I don't really know. It, it might just be kind of playing to the base. It might just be riling people up. But there is very much, I think, I think a, uh, a violent fantasy underlying this, right? She's talking about the need to have a national divorce to avoid civil war. To me, that kind of reads as a threat. It's like, leave us alone or, uh, or there's just going to have to be a war. Who knows? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it, it's sort of the cousin to, um, you know, I think various Federalist writers will say things like, you know, whatever kind of culture war outrage they have, and they'll say, this is what makes people want a Mussolini type character, you know, and, and oh, I, I regret that it will come to this. But you liberals, you just keep pushing us. What are we to do? So for a couple of years now, we've been seeing columns about the idea of a national divorce. And there, there's one that's always fascinated me, and I, I can't pull it up right now. But basically, there's so many issues here. I mean, you point out that obviously, we do not live in, you know, homogenous red state, blue state, even the most conservative states have plenty of liberals in them and vice versa. And so the idea that you would, I guess, all the liberals would move out of the red states and so on. But I mean, of course, you know, we look at the partition in India and how many people died uh, during that. But I'm always fascinated when people kind of like give me, okay, here's the plan, right? And so I read an interesting column where the guy laid out how he actually thought it, it should go. And so basically it would be somewhere like west of the Mississippi would be Democrats, which of course, you know, in the comments, all these Republicans were like, I live in Wyoming over my dead body, scumbag. <laughs> but the one I also thought was funny was that he was like, well, D.C. and everything north of that would have to be Republican because we just can't trust Democrats to take care of like the sites of our founding. And it's just like, oh, OK, so Republicans are going to get New York. And Boston and, and all this. I mean, it's it just really unfeasible. And to prove how unfeasible it was, like I said, I mean, the, the comments were all people saying, what do you mean the Democrats are going to get Texas? <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, so much of it, I think, boils down to a fundamental inability to share. There's no uh, sense of trying to you know, work out your grievances with your neighbor. It's just, uh, this land is my land. I had some fun with this because I'm like, okay, well, if, if we do partition the U.S., who gets the nukes? I looked it up. Unfortunately, Georgia does have a lot of nukes. Some are inactive, but Washington State, which I believe under every uh, partition we've discussed would go to the Democrats, has more nukes than Georgia. So, Rock you know, roll, if you're... Baby. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, <laughs> let it, <laughs> divide it up and let it rip, I guess. And not looking too good for Georgia. Not too good for New York either, though. I didn't know that Georgia had uh, nuclear weapons, but but I, you want to spread them out. You want to spread them out. I, I, I have to say, you know, th there's nothing that makes me feel sort of like more patriotic than people talking about this idea of a national divorce. I'm like, oh, come on. Come on. We're America, baby. Number one. You know, we don't have to do it. And so, you know, it is fortunately, hopefully this will this will not come to pass. But it is it is pretty crazy to have a sitting representative, you know, who's now repeatedly called for, for this national divorce. The other thing I, I would say is that there is, you know, and I think you hit on this is there is kind of this instinct I think people of all political strikes can feel it, but but I think Republicans are a little more pro prone to it lately, is this idea of kind of like, let's just cut through this this democracy crap, and what if we just got rid of our enemies? And, you know, also this fantasy of red America or blue America, whatever side I'm not on, would just utterly collapse as the DEI coordinators seize power in a coup in blue America and all this. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is funny, kind of the, the reflexive patriotism that I also feel when this comes up. If Antifa were to suggest this, that we dissolve the U.S., it would be uh, maybe a week of Fox News primetime segments. But no, it's just a run-of-the-mill talking point from an elected representative on the right that, hey, maybe the U.S. shouldn't exist anymore. And I think that's wild. And I think it's really, uh, it speaks to how inured we've become to just these pretty sensationalist, pretty, I think, in implicitly violent ideas coming out of the right. All right. It's time for our interview. It's time for long-awaited guest, friend of the show, 
It's Will. We're talking to Will. That's right. This week's guest is me, Will Summer, the author of Trust the Plan, The Rise of QAnon, The Conspiracy That Unhinged America, available now. So yeah, so this week we'll be talking about uh, my book, you know, just to briefly talk about it before we dive into the interview proper. We've got a great New York Times review that called it short, punchy, and well-reported. Calls me the perfect person to tell this story. Um, and then there, there's one that, that that people may disagree with, or at least, you know, this one I think is probably true. Um, media obsessive almost morbidly well informed i think that's probably the case <laughs> then some ones that some people who know me personally took issue with he breathes deep of the madness while staying blissfully sane himself you know there's been a lot of disputes that i've managed to say blissfully sane but you know this book has been a long long time coming fever dreams listeners have have really pre-ordered it and, and you know there's so much really appreciate all the excitement and the support uh and you know i'm excited because this book while, while relatively short, it's a little more than 200 pages, not counting footnotes, it is packed with crazy stories that have never been seen before that I think it gives us a not just QAnon, but a, but a facet of the way we live now. So I'm excited to talk about it. I'm excited. This book is a trip. It's full of scoops. It is an incredible read. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of our subscribers, the people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up. All right, we are back with Will, whose book, Trust the Plan, is out today. Really excited to talk about this with him. Um, We're also bringing on uh, producer Jesse Cannon, who has a lot of uh, questions for Will. We're going to grill Will. (laughs) I, I, I'm scared. (laughs) (laughs) So, Will, something that I love in this book is it, in the beginning, kind of kicks at something I've been interested in. And this is the Will Sommer conservative origin story. You hint at an upbringing that was maybe a bit further to the right of what we typically talk about or a bit further to the right than maybe you are right now. And I'd love to learn a little bit about how coming up in a maybe more conservative Texas background played into your work on this beat and your understanding of the subjects you cover today. I've kind of dropped little crumbs about this on the podcast, but yeah, I was raised you know, in sort of a, what you might call a business conservative background, you know, what we might think of as, as sort of relatively mainline, albeit conservative Republicans. You know, and I was real like, a young Republican. We had various family friends who were running for local office. I remember I was tabling at some conference that Rick Perry came through and he, he shook our hand, me and my high school friend, he shook our hands and then we ended up in the, the handshake line again and he at another event and, and he said, I already shook this guy's hand. <laughs> You know, so so that was kind of the universe I was in. I mean, I talk about it in the book. I, I was like, I read like Bill O'Reilly's book for kids. I was, I mean, the tons of like Ayn Rand and talk radio and, and all this stuff. And then, you know, ultimately there were a couple of factors that got me out of it. I mean, obviously the Iraq war being such a disaster really kind of shook me up. I got really into the rap group, The Coup which, uh, you know, the, that guy made a Sorry to Bother You, that movie. And I felt mm-hmm. that like how much his song about like shoplifting rocked i felt was just incompatible with my beliefs at the time <laughs> honestly like kind of the, and, and i had this originally in the book and the, the, the publisher said well this goes on a bit long was that this family friend of ours was a, a state rep and, and kind of in a relatively mainline republican these days i think he'd probably be called a rhino and he ran for state senate against dan patrick who at the time was a local talk radio host now is the lieutenant governor and i was like this dan patrick guy you know for as much as i loved conservative media this dan patrick guy is an absolute crackpot and and then he obliterated our family friend and i was just like man this is not the party for me right now and i sort of didn't see it going in a more moderate direction 
And hey, I was right. You know, I was like 16 when I said that. And uh, Dan Patrick, of course, turned out to be a much bigger political character. And so that was kind of that's kind of my origin story. But but the, the reason it's relevant to the book and, and the podcast is that, you know, I was just consuming just huge amounts of this stuff. And, you know, I, I continued to even after my politics changed. And, uh, you know, and, and that's sort of how I, I developed this sort of hauntingly, uh, <laughs> you know, twisted uh, mind when it comes to conservative media. Well, I'm so glad you're here with us now because uh, it's my absolute nightmare to be having to do this podcast counter to uh, Bizarro World, Will Sommer, who's doing fever happy dreams. I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I, I remember I, I had this English teacher in high school and I was just like, yeah, I really want to be like a Republican operative. Like I want to be, you know, I love like Frank Luntz and stuff. And then he said to me once, he was like, well, that's pretty stupid. You shouldn't do that. And, and, I, and, and I really thought, you know, you might be onto something. <laughs> Oh, what could have been? No, I'm I'm very glad I'm not reporting on the uh, the uh, James O'Keefe like antics of uh, you know mm-hmm. Dark Side Will. Well, Will Summers at it again, folks. Yeah, the FBI raided his house. <laughs> so, Will, this book is it's many things. It's on its face. It's a dive into uh, QAnon, and so many people when they're looking into Q say, "Who is this guy? Who is this eight chan, four chan poster?" and Early on in the book, you do trace some of the origins of the Q story, including Ron Watkins, including a guy named Paul Ferber. So can you kind of walk me through, I hate to be crass, but who is Q? Yeah, I mean, well, you know, I, I think it's very reasonably kind of the first question we, when people hear about QAnon. So, of course, this is the anonymous poster at the heart of QAnon. You know, and a lot of this is laid out, I think, pretty effectively in the HBO documentary Q Into the Storm. But basically, I it's never been conclusively proven. And, you know, I want to say everyone I'm about to name has denied being Q, but I think the most compelling case is this idea that uh, Paul Ferber, who's sort of a random computer programmer, I believe, in South Africa, is is a guy who's involved in conspiracy theories, and he starts posting on 4chan as Q and as sort of the just the latest of these kind of fake whistleblowers. There were a lot of previous ones. And for whatever reason, the way he packaged his anonymous clues gets embraced by larger conspiracy theorists who have YouTube channels, and it sort of takes off from there. So within a few months, they're on Alex Jones, and sort of from there, there was no getting the, the Q back in the barn. And then at some point, Paul Ferber moves it over to 8chan because 4chan says, like, all right, we're, we're sick of these nuts. So they kick him out and they end up on 8chan, which, you know, sort of infamously is run by father and son duo Ron and Jim Watkins and some Americans who live in the Philippines and Japan. And that they, you know, in this, what I think is the most compelling argument, they kind of hijack uh, it from Paul Ferber and people have you know done some great work looking at this and the kind of the moment where Q is suddenly kind of decapitated and, and a new Q emerges in these online posts you know between those three people and you know perhaps there there were other people writing the clues but I think that probably nails it down so when people said oh Q's a guy in his mom's basement like they, they sort of weren't that far off I mean I, I don't think there's there's a mom in the picture here <laughs> but maybe a guy in his dad's basement I mean it, it really was you know while, while Q non-believers oh is Dan Scavino, it's Michael Flynn, it's Don Jr. I mean, the reality is, I I think the most compelling argument is that it is sort of a a handful of nobodies. Well, so when you first came across this, there's obviously no way to see how far this would spin out. But what was like the moment when you went, oh, fuck, I can't believe this has gotten this out of hand. Q is something I was encountering. You know, it starts in October 2017. And for a couple months, maybe a month after that, I started noticing these posts and going, huh, What's up with that? I mean, for me, really, April 2018, I went to a QAnon march in D.C., and it was a couple hundred people, and they were, you know, now these slogans, we've come to learn them and and recognize this stuff. But I, I went to it, and I thought, all right, maybe like a dozen people. I mean, kind of some key figures uh, in QAnon were there, a woman named Tracy Beans, who was one of the, the first promoters of QAnon and would later be kind of a state-level Republican official. You know, I talked to her, and she said, oh, this isn't a QAnon rally. And then they went on a march, and they were going, where we go? go one we go all and that was maybe 200 people and i remember thinking this is the craziest thing i've ever seen in my life and the good news is QAnon will not go any further than this and <laughs> it just kept going and then you know i would go to a year later i went to a thing at the washington monument they had a couple more people 100 more people you know, all the way to January 6th and the QAnon people at the rally in Florida in 2018, where like was kind of a big flashover moment for QAnon. So I I think what for me has been concerning about this and sort of fascinating to watch is that each time 
it seems like, wow, pretty weird that I'm having to explain to a random person, a, a normie, if you will, what QAnon is. And it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Yeah, I'm so glad you bring up Tracy Beans because she's this person who, yeah, as you detail, she went from being like an obscure Q podcaster to I think having a post in the South Carolina GOP, I want to say. I think that's right. Yeah. But throughout your book, there are all these mini Q micro influencers. You go really deep on the, I want to say like almost cult compound led by Austin Steinbart. He's a guy who claims that he's baby Q. He's authoring Q posts in the future. Was there like a worst micro celebrity you encountered? <laughs> God, there's so many. I mean, and, and, Pick and, one. Yeah, you know, I've, I've talked about this on Fever James is like the, the interaction between right wing figures is just endlessly fascinating to me where people are constantly betraying one another or, you know, they'll say, oh, well, sorry, this dirty bastard, all this stuff. And then, you know, an hour later, like, all right, well, off the record, uh, here's this guy I need you to write about his court case. It's fascinating. <laughs> I mean, Austin Steinbart is, you know, that's a truly crazy story. You know, this woman's, she called me up one day and said, look, my sister has been sucked into this cult in the desert. The FBI is involved, all this stuff. They got guns. And so I, I you know, I went out there and, and that's all in the book. But I mean, I think for me, you know, there's obviously a lot of nasty guys, but I think one of the most maddening characters is Vincent Fusca. Of course, this is the guy who wears a fedora and is widely thought to be JFK Jr. among QAnon believers. This is a guy who, he, you know, he knows. He knows he's not JFK Jr., I think, but he's everywhere. And I say to him, hey, Vincent, ready to talk about JFK Jr. and how all these, you know, women, uh, you know, la lavish attention on you? And he'll say, oh, yeah, you know, uh, I'll tell you what, I'm a little busy, but uh, can we talk tonight? And I'll say, oh, yeah, never hear from him. And then, you know, maybe some rival JFK Jr. will be in the news and he'll text me and be like, well, this isn't JFK Jr. You know, but, but he never wants to address it head on. And the interactions I've had with his fans are so bizarre. Uh, I was at one of these kind of pre-January 6th events and this woman came up and was, oh my God, it's JF JFK Jr. Oh yeah. And I said, well, you know, this guy doesn't look a thing like JFK Jr. And she said, well, you know, haven't you ever heard of special effects? Haven't you ever seen, you know, Tyler Perry and Medea? <laughs> truly, truly bizarre stuff. Yeah. So when you were researching the Austin Steinbart cult, this story came to you because an actual family member of a, of a cult resident reached out to you. And that's what's so striking is like, while you're reporting this book, you also have a reputation as one of the best reporters on QAnon. So how do you navigate it when people are, I want to say, like reaching out to you for help as you're reporting this story? Yeah, I mean, it's really tough. I think, you know, I, I'm sure you've encountered this as well. But, you know, I talk about in the book how QAnon can sort of just emerge out of nowhere and wreck your family where suddenly your spouse or your father or mother uh, or your son is is just sucked into QAnon and, and they, you know, detach from reality and all they want to do is talk about adrenochrome and uh, your family is ruined. And so, you know, people reach out to me and they say, look, my spouse suddenly doesn't want to vaccinate my kids for smallpox or someone I knew, he ran a, a nightclub and his business partner really wanted to open up the nightclub and really like flout COVID laws because he got into QAnon. And so all these people say, well, you know, what's the what's the way to get out of it? And there really isn't a, a simple one, you know, and there's kind of random things I can suggest, but it's kind of a tough situation, particularly, I would say pre, you know, in 2020 and earlier, where there was really so, so little writing about QAnon that people were just directed to when they would Google it, they would say, what is my wife babbling about? Or, you know, my son. And then they would just end up on our articles and, you know, kind of, you'd have to almost piece it together from there. So is there anyone who can be tagged as the person who really spread this or did the most irresponsible propagating of Q? Oh, man. I got to talk here about Michael Flynn. I mean, you know, initially, <laughs> QAnon, a guy I find just endlessly fascinating. And if I'd had more time, I, I would have loved to have profiled him in the book. This is a guy who, you know, people have written about him a lot about how this is a guy who was at the top of American intelligence. This is a guy, you know, military intelligence, maybe not like IQ intelligence. <laughs> this is a guy who, you know, in some ways, it sort of seems like the same paranoia and the same just constant, like, looking out for threats that made him effective in the military uh, led him into QAnon. And so, of course, he was the national security advisor for Trump for a little bit. 
and then you know he was charged in the Mueller investigation. And then he's a guy that people thought was Q for a while, and I think a lot of Q non-believers still do. Look, like Vincent Fusca, this is a guy who knows that he's not what he's being set up to be, but he is also a guy who has legal bills to pay, and so he really embraced QAnon in kind of a shocking way. He would go to QAnon rallies, and you know he would help them auction off the the Q quilts for thousands of dollars. And I mean, he really got all in on it. And you know, to the extent that he filmed himself and his family doing the "Where We Go One, We Go All" oath, they're currently suing CNN for saying that's a QAnon oath. They're saying no, that's simply a sign of like family solidarity, which of course is ridiculous. And I guess the the flip side of that is. I talked to multiple families, you know, when when someone was lost to QAnon and, and they would say, well, you know, honey, how can you believe this? And they would say, well, look, Michael Flynn, national security advisor, one of the top cabinet officials in the country. This is a guy he said he's clearly implying that it's real. And, you know, just the, the pain that these families suffered because of this. I mean, there's so many irresponsible people involved in the promotion of QAnon um, from the lowest levels to, to up to Donald Trump. But really, I think uh, Michael Flynn was it was a character who I think sort of really summed up the just the, the avarice and the shamelessness involved in it. You talk a lot about the the tragedies, really, that befall people who get super into QAnon. But what happens to people who become targets of QAnon conspiracy theories? You go in, for instance, on the uh, case of a Florida divorce lawyer who became this QAnon villain. What happens to people like that? Yeah, this is really one of my, my favorite stories in the book. I would have loved to excerpt it, but it's two chapters. It's really such a saga. But but I mean, I, I really think people will like this. We get a little true crimey in the book. So Kim Picazio is this very lovely woman um, in Florida who is a family law attorney and just kind of living her life. And this is a couple years before QAnon. And she starts representing a woman who is sort of at the center of what we might think of as kind of a classic Nancy Grace story. Her very young daughter goes missing and, you know, people start saying, oh, well, you know, maybe she did it. I mean, there's really no evidence that the mother was involved. But so Kim Picazio pro bono signs up to be this woman's attorney. You know, she's going on TV hits with her and sort of trying to protect this woman from from getting nailed and, you know, falsely accused. But some some kind of proto QAnon people latch on to her and say, well, Kim Picazio is involved in this child's disappearance. And then this becomes this whole thing where the, the, these, these bloggers are trying to ruin her life and saying she's a sex trafficker. But for a while, these are just kind of atomized bloggers and they can't really get at her in a significant way. I mean, they're, they're really terrorizing like everyone who knows her. I lost my mind at the, the story she would tell me about how, you know, it would be like her friend's son who's in college has nothing to do with any of this. And then these bloggers would say, we're going to tell the college that he's a pedophile and we're going to smear him all over the place, you know, unless you meet our demands. So then, but then QAnon happens and the, these bloggers, they go, Oh, well, actually, we have a sex trafficker. We know someone who works for the cabal. And so suddenly QAnon latches onto her and she's getting all these death threats. The police have to basically extract her from her office one time because they're like, someone is coming to kill you right now. I mean, people are taking pictures of of her office and, and stalking her and just really vile stuff. Ultimately, what I think is a a very strangely triumphant moment is Kim links up with this woman named uh, Alex Goddard, who is sort of a, I hate to call her an internet troll. She's a very benevolent internet character, but I mean, she, she really is like very enmeshed in this, in the internet. She, and so she and Kim start cataloging all these people because they can't get law enforcement to care at all. And they become really sort of the experts on this one group of QAnon people. And then that group starts plotting to kidnap children. And this, this dovetails with something I've written about before, which is, this this QAnon kidnapping group and, and Cindy Absug uh, in Colorado, to the extent that the FBI then starts relying on them to say, well, look, QAnon is committing these crimes across the country. How can you can you help us? And Kim and her, all of the these women in her divorce firm who have now become these experts and are sort of running their own Q Intel network, then are able to help catch some of these criminals. It's a triumphant story in many ways, and I think it's a it's a cool one. And it was one that I I like talking with her about. I think the the tragic aspect of it is, you know, number one, Kim really has had her life derailed for years because of this. I mean, she had to go into hiding. I think she probably lost friends. I think she had to shrink away. I mean, this is someone with a big personality and who's really a pillar of her community who had to just to save people. She had to cut them off. And so just the way that QAnon and conspiracy theories more broadly, as we've seen with Sandy Hook and things like that, something had just happened to you and then, you know, or Seth Rich, and then suddenly the thousands, millions of people on the internet decide to ruin your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, okay. So these, these kidnappings, right? It's, I think, kind of an underhyped 
feature of QAnon that mm, a lot of a lot of actual child kidnappings happening in proximity to this conspiracy theory. And you've done a lot of great reporting on a, a group or a movement called, I think it's E-Claws. Yes. Yeah. What What's E-Claws doing? Yes, E-Claws, and this comes from, you know, we've talked about sovereign citizens here on the podcast before, but these are people who kind of exist in their own legal universe. Like they think that in this case, they think that Donald Trump invented the emoluments clause in the Constitution so that they could, you know, sort of remake the American court system. So these people, are very QAnon heavy and they latch on to typically women who lose custody of their kids for various reasons, often because they are you know, addicted to drugs or they have serious mental health issues. Then rather than work on those issues or work through the court system to get their kids back, they get sucked in by these E-Claws hucksters who say, well, actually, you know, the problem is the cabal has stolen your child. There was a woman in Colorado who started plotting with QAnon believers to assault with guns the foster home where her child was living. Another case, this woman who is very big E-Claws and QAnon believer ends up murdering the head of E-Claws because she turns on him and says, no, you're working with the cabal and all this. And so as someone who's following this and kind of enmeshed with a lot of these people's lives, it was really bizarre because, you know, I was corresponding with them and, and you know, they were in many ways, you know, they were able to live in the normal world, except they were sometimes trying to abduct their children and they were stocking up on guns. And so one day I just got a call from a guy who said this woman murdered this guy. And these are people I knew. And I just thought, this is crazy. I get into it all in the book. I mean, ultimately, uh, this stuff, you know, climaxes in a lot of court cases. There's a fugitive aspect to it where they, they kind of go on the run. And they, this is when the the kind of the, the Cohen brothersism of it comes in where, you know, these people are meeting on the run with JFK Jr. impersonators or getting wire transfers and hiding out in the river, you know, hiding out in kind of burned out motels in Arkansas. As a reporter, it, the, the storyline was really irresistible. And hopefully folks will find it to be a very sort of interesting yarn. Yeah, there's actually like a lot of low key spy thriller stuff in this book by like, I want to say like 2020, 2021, you're well known enough in the QAnon world that sometimes you have to like don a disguise to go to a QAnon conference. So can you walk me through like some of the reporting you did on the ground and how you managed to do that while being a, a pariah in Q world? <laughs> As reporters, you know, we have certain things we can't do. So we're not going James O'Keefe mode here, right? Like, I don't want to be using a fake name or something like that. But, you know, if I wear sunglasses and a hat that maybe make it a little harder for someone across a room to recognize me, you know, I'm, I'm fine with that. You know, I'm not, you know, if I interview someone, I'm going to tell them I'm a journalist. But, you know, if I'm going to a conference, I think it's fair game to uh, maybe not shave for shave my beard for a couple weeks. And so I'm a little less recognizable. Sometimes it doesn't always work out. I was at this QAnon conference in Dallas uh, a few years back and Michael Flynn takes the stage and he starts going saying, and the real sick thing about the media is there's a reporter here tonight who broke all the rules and he snuck in and I'm kind of looking around like, uh-oh, someone's going to get busted. <laughs> and then, then I realized I'm like, oh, you know, a lot of these kind of private security guys sure are uh, sitting next to me for some reason. And then, of course, then the police sweep in and, and they, my cover had been blown apparently because I had looked a little bored, I guess. Was the, was the, and that's how they kind of sussed me out. So, you know, it is, you know, fortunately, I was able to uh, to get out safely. But um, yeah, I mean, it really is, you know, sometimes with these situations, I, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to find out what's going on. And, and you kind of got to go there and hear what people are talking about. You know, I went to this, uh, this Tulsa event is kind of a similar thing. And they were, oh, no reporters. And we're gonna have the security because we think Antifa is going to come out to Tulsa and really rock it. It's just a fascinating situation to to sort of get in there and hopefully without really misleading people, but just, you know, anything available to a member of the public to sort of feel and, and be with the crowd and see and see how they react to it as well. Mm -hmm. So, Will, you've been on this beat for ages. You've spent well over a year reporting this book. What's changed since you started writing? Since I started writing it, I mean, we had the 2020 election and the just this kind of conspiratorial aspect of it, I think, has become much more mainstreamed within the GOP. And I, and I think QAnon's played a big role in that. I mean, I think not everyone here is going to say, yeah, I'm a QAnon believer. But I think this idea that this kind of free-floating conspiracism where everything is connected and, and you know, there's shadowy hands behind everything that you have members of Congress saying, well, I think the Chinese balloon thing is a distraction from the train derailment and th these kind of just this idea that there's a secret world and a secret hand behind everything is, you know, just something we didn't see before in such a widespread way in the Republican Party. And then I'd also say that 
Donald Trump has endorsed QAnon in a way that I never would have imagined. If I look back in 2018 and you told me that Trump was posting pictures of himself wearing Q buttons uh, as he is now, admittedly photoshopped ones, but nevertheless, I mean, he's he's really saying this is not, you know, kind of a cryptic thing anymore. He's saying, you know, yeah, here, hey, here's some cool Q memes. I never would have expected that. And, and I think as we head towards 2024, I think we're going to see a lot of this stuff really ramp up. All right, Will, this is a banger book. I'm so glad it's out in the world. Everyone, it's Trust the Plan. It's out today. Pick up a copy and get your mind blown. Thank you. And now for Fresh Hell. Will, can you tell us why the right is obsessed with thinking that they live in a longhouse? <laughs> You know, this kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, sort of a prehistoric internet meme at this point, a uh, long cat, which is just so oh, long cat. Yeah. So this kind of reminds yeah. me of that. But look, here here on Fever Dreams, and particularly in Fresh Hell, we like to give you kind of the, the new terminology that, that is coming to the fore. So this one, there is a need on the right, and particularly the new right, which read as, when you hear new right, you can think fascist or proto-fascist, often kind of hardcore, uh, like trad cath guys who are, who basically want a dictator. So in this case, they're looking for a term that sums up the liberal world order. How can we encompass academia, the bureaucracy, the deep state, what they see as sort of the critical race theory, uh, oligarchy, the press, the whole thing. How do we wrap this up and, and, and encompass sort of the mores of our time? And so, you know, in the past, they've called this the cathedral. You know, I think a lot of these Silicon Valley guys say, oh, we have to smash the cathedral, stuff like that. But w- what I'm seeing now is I'm seeing the, them referring to to the the sort of the conventional wisdom or, or the way that, that what they find to be an oppressive neoliberal world order as the longhouse. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this idea of the longhouse, right, it, it's really impressive because it's sort of like they managed to be like anti-indigenous and sexist in one go. It's this idea that uh, a lot of indigenous cultures, you know, were run kind of communally. Women had more of an elevated role in uh, distributing whatever, you know, whatever they farmed or uh, hunted. And so this is the longhouse. This is the oppressive structure that we live in where women are secretly in control. And this has been kind of percolating. You see this a lot in Twitter memes where some guy with a groiper avatar is like, oh, my feelings when the longhouse oppresses me. And it's like, you know, it's, uh, my teacher didn't give me a gr- good grade. My mom told me to do the laundry, that kind of thing. <laughs> longhouse. <laughs> they're, yeah. And so they're really trying to make this into like a, a kind of pseudo academic term. And there's a uh, there's a essay, if you want to call it that, on the uh, site first things. It's by a character named uh, Lomez. It's, I think, stylized with like some zeros and everything. That's Yeah, the, the E is a three. I had never heard of Lomez before, but he's he's one of the leading lights of the of the new right, I think. Yeah, absolutely. You can't be a leading light of the new right right now without, you know, having like a couple underscores in your name, maybe a couple stylistic X's, like it's an old AIM uh, handle, something like that. I want to read like a little bit of this because, not because it's good, but because I need to actually have our listeners understand how bad it is. He says, more fundamentally, the longhouse is a metonym for the disequilibrium afflicting the contemporary social imaginary. So, okay, basically what this means for people who aren't like trying to BS the way through an English 101 paper is like, this is a symbol I made up for why uh, society makes me feel bad. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of both the cathedral, but then also when anti-mask people would call them face diapers. And it's like, I will not wear a face diaper. And I was like, well, yeah, if you put it that way, I could understand. <laughs> you're, you're, right, but you just don't think of it like that. So, right. So the longhouse is the idea. It's kind of similar to the cathedral. But, but as you say, th- there's this very specific, like, we are being dominated by women as though we are sitting in the dark in a smoky Viking longhouse. All the men are gone. They're, uh, you know, they're plundering Ireland. And the rest of us are, are we're, we're just being, you know, forced to, to abide all these these this feelings based rule. I guess this is becoming a sort of a code word for for this idea of, you know, these guys who want to go back to prehistoric times or obviously the big one here is the bronze age, right? You know, one of these great thinkers, the bronze age pervert that was apparently very popular in the Trump White House. This idea of we got to go back to like when masculine men killed uh killed mastodons and could do whatever you wanted. So, interestingly to me though, it is, first of all, kind of crazy that this essay ran in, in first things. This essay has kind of set off a lot of debate on the new right because, number one, it's a pseudonymous guy named Lomez, but also because it sort of lays bare the deal here. And, and first things is, I believe, a Catholic website, and they, they kind of want to kind of dress things up a little more. They don't want to uh, say, like, you know, we got to go back to caveman times to the extent that 
Patrick Deneen, who's a, I believe, Notre Dame professor, who I actually once had at Georgetown as uh, for one of my core curriculum classes, didn't find him especially good. And in fact, later caught him uh, giving a speech at a racist conference, which, for which he apologized profusely. Anyways, so he's now kind of one of their great thinkers. And Patrick Deneen is like, we can't think like the Longhouse guys. Like, this is just too, people are not going to like that we're just like, there's too many dang women in public life. And so, of course, everyone has responded to him. You know, all these people with Roy Reaper avatars saying, shut up, cuck. That is the debate these days in the new right. It's interesting to me that this comes at a moment when like women's reproductive and health rights are under attack. And they're really putting it out there saying, do these women have it uh, too easy? Do they have a little bit too much power? And rather than like actually survey the legal landscape and come to a, I think, a sober answer, they cherry pick. They decide what exactly they're getting mad about here. This writer is mad that women are overrepresented in certain professions like a human resources management and compliance officers, which they are aggrieved that that's 57% women. They say that this determines workplace behavioral norms and therefore has an outside influence on professional culture. And I just want to say, like, do you want to do the same gender breakdown on CEOs and bosses at those workplaces? And, you know, follow up question, do you think bosses have a bearing on workplace culture, because this is an iteration of a whole history of older anti-feminist tropes. People who look at the world and try and figure out why exactly they perceive women to have so much power. They can't really do that based on any historical data on presidents or CEOs or really where, you know, most power lies. So they try and uh, pick professions that they say have too much representation from women. They'll say teachers and caregivers are usually women. So they're indoctrinating kids to hate men. Now, is the right uh, trying to get men to be uh, teachers and caregivers or you know, make those professions better paid to appeal to men? Well, no, but they're mad that women are out in public life and implicitly, uh, you know, setting the terms. You know, I, I think what sums it up here is <laughs> I dug up a popular tweet here that says, you know, the ultimate man breaking out of the longhouse, the guys in Fight Club. So, so that's what we're working with here. And I think this will, this will be coming up more. So, so we're putting a classic fever dreams. Stay tuned on this one. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics to popular culture. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian DeMeglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.